The Dex Morneau Series by Jenny Decker. Narrated by Greg Kreitz and Jenny Decker. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. It's been a week, and a lot has happened. So let me pour a drink and fill you in. Carla is off on a female product shopping excursion with Lola. One I almost got wrangled into were it not for my obvious need for some quality non-Carla time. Carla, I don't want to go to the drugstore. I don't need to go to the drugstore. You seem to be the only one interested in tottering around the aisles picking out nail polish and deodorant which I only know because I heard the chipmunk read your list while I was getting out of the shower this morning. We were downstairs at the bar with the octogenarian crowd for breakfast. Both Lola and Shirley, Trudy's mom, overheard the conversation because we were seated at the bar. I have to get hair color, Morneau. I've got an inch of regrowth because I haven't been home to take care of it. I look like shit, I feel like shit, and you are being irritating as shit. We have the city council meme tonight and I would like to look presentable, if you don't mind. (coughs) (coughs) A smattering of chuckles accompanied my cough, which sounded even phlegmier than it felt at the back of my throat. I had some kind of bug that I couldn't shake, and my lungs felt like I was breathing through pudding. Lo, just take her over to Rite Aid. Won't be too much traffic now till lunch. Cranky Britches and I can have another cup of coffee. Why am I the Cranky Britches when she's the one throwing all the shits around? Hey, you. Stop talking now or you're gonna regret it. You two, go. And change that chipmunk voice, Carla. I'm tired of it. At least my phone sounds like a gal who understands that all hope is lost. Her voice comforts me. I started coughing again and Shirley hooked me up with another warm brandy. This one, she didn't have to hide from Carla. Shirley and I understood each other. She's worked behind the bar for enough years to understand the complete futility in asking an alcoholic not to drink. It felt good to chat with her for a bit, lifted a few pounds off the old shoulders. Once I drained that second drink, I fuck-sticked my way back upstairs and flopped down on the bed, staring blindly, or almost blindly, at the ceiling. The eyes seemed to be getting better, though I hadn't shared that with Carly yet, cause they're still blurry most of the time, and other times I can only make out shapes. But I can tell things are evolving, pupillarily speaking. Before you get out your yellow highlighter, let me remind you that I'm an author, or was, once upon a time. I'm allowed to make up words. In fact, I've got this disturbing idea for a story about a werewolf flapping around in my head. Don't ask. Not even sure what to do about that one, since typing and the free time to do so are both out of the question right now. Okay, so where were we? No, wait. Glass is empty again. Let me pour another from the bottle I've got stored beneath my side of the bed before Carla gets back and asks why I'm drinking before 10 a.m. You'd think she'd stop asking by now. Anyway, about a week ago, the day after we learned from Lash that we were being shut out of the dual bomb investigations, 
We awoke to a knock at our door and a box full of goodies in the form of the reports and paperwork that Carla managed to extort from City Attorney Sims. His tiny gal Friday at the Sheriff's Department had come through. It took us a couple days to thoroughly weed through it all, and man, was it weedy. Not just the process, which required Carla to read a section, then type the information into a document on her laptop, and then have the text-to-speech program she downloaded read back the information. The documents we were working from were scanned from microfiche, so the program was unable to read them like a normal document. Our combined disabilities, along with working from documents that weren't properly digitized, turned what could have been a couple days' work into a week-long effort. But I have to give Carla credit. She let me drink as much as I wanted, and occasionally switched up the accents and sex of the voices reading back the information. My favorite, by far, was Anjali from the UK, with Garth from Texas coming in a strong second. First off, we learned that the embezzlement in the clerk's office, which had gotten Carla's panties in such a twist, appears to be entirely unrelated, while still fascinating for its place in the timeline of events. Dottie Crittenden was the accounts payable clerk for Reed City, a post she'd held for over two decades, working alongside Marlene Fletcher at the city building, which is, incidentally, a couple blocks down from Chestnut and Upton, and a few streets over. It sits right next to the Reed City Police Department. Based on the police report, after a cash flow problem became an issue, the city manager started reviewing deposits. The city manager at that time was Ralph Sandrin, by the way. After an internal audit, what they found was described by Detective Price as a lapping scheme where money from one customer, which is being paid on one date, would be credited to another of a back date. Then another customer would pay, and the money from this would cover the account that was first mentioned. But that wasn't enough for Dottie, no sir. There was a second scheme she employed, whereby she would take checks from Commercial City and sewer customers, in one case, the Reed City Hospital, and log the check-in differently on the deposit slip than the amount written on the check. When all was said and done, and the investigation complete, it was learned that between January 1st, 1980, In March 8, 1980, the sewer and water, refuse, and general funds were short a total of $42,495.96. The kicker here is that despite her having worked for over 20 years with the city, those were the only years that were audited because that's when she told them she started taking money. Coincidentally, it's also as far as the computerized billing went back. Prior to that, the books weren't computerized. Law enforcement and the city were either unable or unwilling to go back and investigate prior years. Because Dottie had retired in 1982 and was the sole person handling the sewer and water billing while in the employ of the city, the embezzlement was not unearthed until early 1983, when her little lapping scheme could no longer continue feeding itself. Once she was gone, she couldn't steal from Peter on Tuesday to pay Paul from last month. The investigation concluded that Dottie had worked alone, and they found no indication that anyone else had been aware of what she'd been doing. Unfortunately, because the investigation was going on quietly behind the scenes, 
Marlene Fletcher knew way more than the others on the city council. Months before the other members and the public would learn about the embezzlement, deficits were beginning to appear, and complaints were starting to be made by customers about their billing. It didn't take long for the city manager, mayor, and city clerk to get an idea of what was going on, but only an internal audit coupled with a police investigation would tell them for sure. That was a lengthy process, what with needing search warrants for anything they wished to obtain directly from the bank. While that was being done, unbeknownst to the council, one particularly snarky councilwoman took it upon herself to start checking accounts one by one. And because she wasn't privy to the investigation, it appeared to her that people were not being properly charged for the services. Oddly, she seemed to blame the negligence on Marlene Fletcher, specifically. To add governmental stupidity to injury, there was a harried effort by the mayor and city manager to make back some of the deficit. So they proposed increases in sewer and water rates under the guise of a general rate increase. That did not go over well. Reporters got a whiff that something unseemly might be afoot, so they started showing up at council meetings. This only fueled the grandstanding of the snarky councilwoman. She proceeded to pass out water and sewer rate charts to the entire room of attendees and after that slowly held up printout sheets, one by one, for the television camera, which broadcast council meetings live on a local feed at the time and stated that she would appreciate some answers. Those answers, she presumed, should come from the city manager and city clerk. The old bat had no way of knowing she was working from cooked reports, and in the end, would look like a battle axe for tormenting the mother of a murder victim whose body was barely cold. It is worth noting that this was all happening a few months after the brutal slaying of Marlene Fletcher's daughter, Jill and there were a few months of high drama and finger-pointing before a closed meeting occurred, after which it suddenly stopped, some eight months after the murder. The date of that particularly lengthy closed session occurred on the same day Dottie Crittenden was arrested. What I kept thinking through it all was how it must have felt to sit and listen to the sniping and gossiping and finger-pointing about the sewer and water issue when your daughter was brutally attacked just down the street and nobody had been arrested for it. Marlene had to have moments where she wanted to take a baseball bat around the room and while swinging wildly, suggest a little perspective was in order. What I was left with after digging into that stuff was a fondness for Marlene Fletcher, the mother of our victim. She was made of tough stock. She didn't miss a single council meeting after the death of her daughter. She was there at work, helping keep the city running, while the local law enforcement agencies never got any closer to finding out who brutally murdered her daughter. She died never knowing. There's a certain kind of brutality in that, too. Before we dug into the meat of our paperwork, the Reynolds case investigation file, we read through the arrest report and subsequent jail intake form for the cop who'd assaulted a state trooper and citizen at the bar next door to the hardware store a month before the murder. I was shocked it still existed. It was an entertaining read, in a way, that I can tell you police reports generally aren't. 
perhaps because the subject of the report exhibited such bluster. What can I tell you about this guy? Well, let's see. I feel like his fellow officer, certainly his boss, the police chief, didn't want him around anymore. Because multiple times during the scene, I will outline for you in a moment, the county deputies who were on duty that night, literally two blocks down the road, tried to have one of his city cop buddies come down and get him. Now, anyone who knows even a little bit about police culture knows that these guys generally look out for one another. We've all heard about the cop pulling the cop over and no ticket being issued. We all know the drill, and no matter how we roll our eyes or voice our displeasure, this is the way it is. Unless we're talking about a crime so horrendous, it won't fit beneath the rug. Generally, that's where the rest of their infractions end up getting swept. Okay, fine. But that wasn't the case on this night. Nobody wanted to help the cop in question. It's almost like they were trying to get rid of him. And when those same calls were made later by the state troopers, he would have been able to hear the reply because they did so in his presence over the portable radio. I think it's safe to assume that even after the altercation I am about to illustrate for you, in what I hope will be an entertaining but abridged version, his anger was escalating. So here we go. Guy who's an off-duty city cop walks into the bar. Off-duty cop is already drunk because he's just come from a holiday party at the chief's house. Off-duty cop orders another drink and starts getting belligerent with customers because it appears he's an asshole. You know the type. Off-duty cop calls a customer's wife abroad, precipitating a heated conversation which ends when her husband says... One of these times, you're going to be without your uniform. To which our not-so-nice off-duty cop replies while angrily unzipping his jacket, I don't have it on now. Then invites the aggrieved husband into the bathroom for a little tea-to-tea, which only takes a few moments to get loud enough that a random customer goes in to tell them to pipe down. Off-duty cop takes issue with random customer because I don't need any motherfucking kid telling me what to do. I should note that every bit of his dialogue in the police report is written in all caps, suggesting that he was not using his inside voice at any time during the altercation. Hang on. Let me pour another drink. Okay, 
So next, the off-duty cop grabs who he refers to as the young punk by the throat and slams him into the bathroom wall, then shoves him down to the floor with such force the trooper who took his statement used three exclamation marks to get the point across. Off-duty cop punches him a few more times while the barmaid, upon hearing loud thumping and banging noises emanating from the bathroom, telephones the police to send someone down immediately because he was in her bar drunk and beating on one of the patrons and she wanted him to leave. Off-duty cop threatens random customer he'd just punched, choked, and knocked to the floor that he better damn well keep his punk-ass mouth shut, then exits bathroom as a state trooper enters the bar. Off-duty cop immediately asks the trooper, What's the state police doing in my town? The state trooper questions the assaulted random customer who says, It's all over now. Forget it. The off-duty cop screams, I am not leaving this bar and you can't make me. Did I mention the state trooper was black? The trooper very patiently asked the off-duty cop three times to leave the bar which he continues to respond, You can't make me leave. The third time he adds, You can't go around pushing people around. I don't care if you were shot before. It doesn't give you a right to push people around. The trooper once more suggests that if he doesn't leave, he will be escorted out by force. To which the off-duty cop replies, You're dead. I'm going to kill you, you motherfucking son of a bitching The off-duty cop punctuates that gem by throwing himself at the trooper and grabbing his collar. The trooper takes him down, over a table, amid much screaming and banging and broken beer bottles, and the situation ends with the off-duty cop on the floor, cuffed, nose-bleeding, and huffing like a goat. By that time, he probably smelled like one, too. After this, the trooper again tried to contact the city police chief to have him come pick up his now hog-tied patrolman. And the answer over the portable radio was, Do what you must do. In the movie version of this story, a foreboding would precede this statement. To pull this sordid train into the station, another deputy was called to transport him the couple of blocks to the county lockup, during which time there was more ranting about how he was going to kill that bleepity bleep bleep. And as they were getting him into the vehicle, he said, Sixteen years I've been a police officer and only have one more year before retirement, and now that's gone. That, my friends, is what we call an awareness of the stakes. It proves the subject was clearly aware of the probable consequences. For that dumb cop on that night, those are some pretty high stakes. He is taken to jail and during the booking process, still screaming about killing the state trooper, punches the glass intake window repeatedly. Then he's taken to local hospital to have his hand attended to, and is then returned to the pokey to wait out the night in a cell. You know, to give him a little time to think about his bad choices. When I asked Carla why she latched onto the cop so early in her research, she told me she'd found an article about the assault at the bar, and it happened close enough in time and proximity to stand out. There was nothing about it that in any way linked him to Jill's homicide, though I admit that hearing Sandrin recall the fact that the cop lived at the Osceola at the time of the murder was interesting, given the state of that building now, as well as its connection to Carla. But none of that had anything to do with the murder, at least not on his face. 
Then we learned a couple things from the Reynolds homicide report that made me very, very uncomfortable. The cop was not fingerprinted until a month after the murder of Jill Reynolds. And guess who did the fingerprinting? Detective Price. It is the only mention of his name in the entire bar assault report. He wasn't handling that case. A single journal entry dated February 21, 1982 says, Subject, fingerprinted, and photographed this date by Detective Price. And this occurred three days after he was formally fired by the city police chief. It is, incidentally, a month after Detective Price interviewed him about his attendance at the hardware store on Upton Street on the very day that Jill was murdered. Why the photographs, though? This would have been two months after the injury to his hand, and a month after the murder. Did the cop have injuries that Price felt it important to document? aside from what would have been attributed to the assault on the booking window at the jail. One thing is certain, the cop had to know at the time of the murder that his job was on the line. According to another newspaper account, after taking out his aggression on a window in the sheriff's department, the broken hand resulted in him not returning to work, and under the union contract, an officer can use a crude vacation and sick time and still collect a paycheck while incapacitated. He never went back to work for the Reed City PD. The timeline of events is intriguing for a number of reasons that I think you'll understand once I unpack the Reynolds case file for you in as succinct a way as possible. Given what we have is around 600 pages, we were only provided the report through 1986. So we have no idea what's been done on the case since. We also don't have any witness statements. After two days of gorging on the file, it finally dawned on Carla that huge hunks of the report had been removed before giving it to us. Her chipmunk and Sims had what was an interesting speakerphone conversation via my phone, whereby she tried her damnedest to verbally rip him another southerly slit. It was clear that however he was able to get the information, there had been a concerted effort to keep the witness statements from us. Either he couldn't get them, or he wouldn't. Here's what we know. Jill Reynolds went to work that day. She had coffee with the lady who ran the register upstairs before the store opened and then went downstairs. At some point in the afternoon, she had not been seen for some time. A clerk went down into the basement to check the back room and found her lying in a puddle of blood. One of the first things Detective Pierce carefully outlines in his report after mentioning that he was contacted by the county prosecutor and asked to come to the scene is who he recognizes when he arrives. He notes the name of a customer who was manning the door and let him in. And he notes three of the four Reed City PD officers, including the cop of the now infamous bar attack, which again had only occurred a month earlier, right next door. He notes all the county deputies present, as well as the EMTs, and adds that it was learned through investigation that, in addition to the police officers at the scene, ambulance employees, and the clerk, a number of people had been down in the vicinity of the body at least once, some more than once. That list includes the store manager, the store owner, a male store patron who'd been in the store when she was found, the county medical examiner, and the Reed City police chief. Now that stuck out because in all the archived newspaper reports, Carla's sexy British laptop voice read to me, the police chief was careful to note that he was not at the scene on the day of the brutal murder. 
He said he'd been out of town. Why would a police chief distance himself in that way? The other thing that stands out is how that list of people tromping around the body gives off a real Grand Central Station vibe, suggesting the scene was not secured properly or early enough. There was about a half hour or 45 minutes before Price arrived where just about anything could have happened. He notes that pictures were taken by himself and the evidence technician who arrived with the mobile unit and was assisted by techs from the Cadillac Police Department. Then he notes something that might not be so startling, if not for the fact that this person shouldn't have been at the scene at all because they were currently suspended from the police force. He notes that the cop, our cop, the one who lived at the Osceola at the time, along with himself and the evidence technicians from Wexford County, assisted in processing the crime scene. It occurred to me that Price, not wanting to answer any questions regarding the Reynolds case originally, seemed like par for the course. Suddenly blocking us from the Osceola bomb case after he'd been open in the exchange of information about that in our first meeting, now feels as if there may be an element of urgency tossed in for good measure. The hundreds of pages that follow outline leads that were followed up, all of which appeared to run their course, and customers who contacted with times they were in the store in an effort to nail down a timeline, they focused on the husband for a considerable amount of time right off the bat while following up on leads. Then, right around the one-year anniversary of the murder, they got an anonymous tip about a mentally ill man who lived in the area at the time. Because his parents once owned the hardware store, two owners back, on top of having mental health issues, they spent months chasing down information on him. It never appears, at least in the paperwork we have, that they could place him at the scene that day. Over a year after the murder, leads had dried up and they were putting out press releases asking folks to come forward if they had any information. This did not prove fruitful either. In one interview, Price is quoted as saying, not enough leads are coming in, I know somebody knows something. In the pages near the end of the report we received, which cut off abruptly around 1986, two other detectives were assigned to go over every person of interest and lead Price had looked into, including people who lived in Jill's apartment complex, her husband and his co-workers, her father, her brother, and a couple kids from the local high school who hung around their apartment complex. They didn't seem to have any more luck than Price did. In the end, the district commander queried the FBI to request a profile from their behavioral sciences division with recommendations on how to proceed. Months later, that information was provided and it was suggested they go back to the store employees and question them all over again. That's what the new detectives did and that's where our report ended. We were able to make a list based on the report of a few people we wanted to speak to one being the county prosecutor who called Price to the scene in the first place. Because why was the county prosecutor at the scene of a homicide before the state police detective? Who called him? He's the one who called Price. That means he had a compelling reason to bring another law enforcement entity into the already muddled mix. 